It's Tuesday, July 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The reopening of America has not been going so well just yet. While some gains have been made, a resurgence of cases and delays in unemployment benefits have continued to push people to the edge. There are issues with fraud and user confusion, long waits to process jobless applications, and outdated computer systems used by unemployment offices. Eli Rosenberg, work and labor reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, California is largely closing again amid a rise in coronavirus cases. Governor Gavin Newsom has ordered once again the closure of indoor dining and limits on gyms, churches, hair salons, and other businesses. And as cases go up, testing continues to be a problem to get under control. From the very beginning of the pandemic, the state fell behind and has been struggling to keep up. There was problems with current infrastructure, supply shortages, and it led to difficulties in contact tracing too. Emily Baumgartner, reporter for the LA Times, joins us for California's failure at mass testing. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We do support another round of economic impact payments. You know, in most cases, those are not checks, it's direct deposits. And we can get that into hardworking Americans' bank accounts very, very quickly. Joining us now is Eli Rosenberg, work and labor reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Eli. Thanks so much for having me. As we continue to make our way through the coronavirus pandemic, one lifeline that a lot of people have had has been unemployment benefits. Obviously, Congress passed a bunch of things to help make that a little more robust. People are getting an extra $600 for their payments. But there's a lot of other people who have just been kind of left in the lurch with all of this. There's been huge delays. People have gone by weeks and months without getting payments or even a callback sometimes from their local unemployment offices. It's been a pretty hard time for a lot of people. Eli, tell us a little bit about what's going on with unemployment. So many of us know by now that just a flood of people out there have lost their work in the last couple of months because of the pandemic. And that sent a ton of people applying for unemployment insurance from their state agencies. You have more than somewhere in the range of 50 million people applied for unemployment insurance at some point during this crisis. And currently about 18 million people continue receiving benefits. So that flood of applicants has created a huge amount of challenges for these state agencies that are not used to that level of applications or really anything close to that. And for a lot of workers out there, this has been an issue since the beginning of the pandemic. There's been some pretty significant delays that states have been slowly working through and getting better at. But as we reported today, there's still some folks out there who've been waiting a month, two months or longer to get their unemployment benefits and struggling to uh, just take care of their basic needs and bills in the meantime. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, we are reopening a lot of the states, but there's surging cases. So that's a problem there. And then, as you noted in your article, there's tens of thousands of workers at Levi's, Wells Fargo and United Airlines who learned that they could be getting furloughed or laid off in the coming months. So this whole thing is not over yet with that respect. One thing I noted in your article, you mentioned that there's a lot of issues with fraud and user confusion over the new rules and filing processes. This has helped bog down the whole process. What kind of fraud and user confusion are we looking at? States around the country have been dealing with a level of fraud in terms of applications submitted for these unemployment claims. I think that's something that typically happens in general. And now with the flood of applicants, perhaps happens at a slightly higher level than normal. So the normal work to kind of verify that applicants are who they say they are, that their personal information, their social security information hasn't been compromised 
is just so much harder because there's so many more of them out there. So that's just another issue, which adds to the complicating factors of getting these applications through the system that you have to verify that they're all legitimate. So we've heard some reports about people getting their claims flagged for fraud, even though they're legitimate claims. Is that a sign of the system working legitimately, just sort of normal speed bumps on the road to getting your insurance process? Probably, but just with the level of applications we're seeing out there, it's something that makes the process even slower than it already is for some people. The backlog is pretty bad. Uh, One of the stats you had in the article, by the end of May, about 18.8 million out of 33 million claims, just about 57% had been paid out nationwide. So there's still a lot of people that were still waiting to get through the process. One question I had about that, do those people that you know are waiting, let's say they're weeks or maybe even a month into the process, do they get paid what they should have gotten paid from when they first applied or do they just get paid you know, last two weeks? How does that work? We're hearing some different things. One thing that makes this kind of tricky to track is that the federal government at least doesn't track or release statistics about sort of how many claims out there are getting filed in the country. But like you said, a large number... 18 million out of about 33 million had been processed, leaving more than 12 million claims that were still needing processing at the end of May. So for some folks, those delays are pretty significant. What about uh, denied claims? There was a section you had about Oklahoma having approved 235,000 out of about 590,000 claims, but they had a big number, 350,000 claims that they denied. How is that working out? We weren't able to get to the bottom of that for this story. The state of Oklahoma said that there's a new type of unemployment insurance available to self-employed workers and gig workers. And to get that insurance, they have to first apply for regular unemployment insurance, get denied, and then apply for the second type of insurance that they're eligible for. So they were saying that a large number of those claims are due to people having to get denied to apply to the PUA insurance, what it's called for gig workers. But only 47,000 people I think, applied to the PUA in Oklahoma. So that's only about a seventh out of that 350000 So uh, again, just trying to figure out what's happening with people out there, how long they're waiting, whether they're getting their benefits back. And just to kind of piggyback on the question you asked before, we've heard all sorts of different things. We've heard some people waiting six weeks, eight weeks, and then finally getting on a lump sum. We've heard some people waiting a long time and only getting the past couple weeks. We're not getting all of the employment insurance if they work multiple jobs that they think they're owed, but also being so sort of frustrated with the system at that process that they're happy to just be getting some money after not getting any. So it's not exactly clear whether or not people are getting paid out for all those benefits they miss when they do get paid out. It's just such an unfortunate thing when so many people need the help. No one knew that the coronavirus pandemic was going to hit so hard, but we knew that this crush of job losses was going to hit. So that's kind of a tough thing to square away. And one thing that we always hear about is just kind of the outdated systems. I know the computers are a big thing. Oklahoma just going on with them. I think they said they have an old mainframe computer from 1978 and they have like full-time staff just dedicated to making sure that thing doesn't crap out. So, I mean, these are just all the difficulties that these unemployment offices are dealing with as you mentioned, too, while they're just getting crushed with more and more claims. We sort of say that it's a confluence of crises, right, in the article. And one of those is the unprecedented volume of claim, but one of those is the years of neglect and lack of funding and budgets being pared down in these state unemployment agencies. 
pretty crazy right now that any office, state or private, would be using a mainframe computer from the 1970s. One thing that didn't make it into the story was you were talking to the agency in the state of Oregon that deals with unemployment insurance, and they too said that the computer they relied on was 50 years old. So I asked them if that meant it was from 1970. They didn't have an exact date, but apparently might even be even older than Oklahoma's 1978 mainframe. So yeah, a system that's not been functioning well or set up to succeed now being really challenged in a way that it's not prepared for. Eli Rosenberg, work and labor reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Fitness centers, places of worship, uh, offices for non-critical sectors, personal care services, uh, that includes hair salons, barbershops, and indoor malls. Joining us now is Emily Baumgartner, medical reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Thank you. Glad to be here. As we continue to progress our way through the coronavirus pandemic, states have reopened, cases are surging. It seems like we're taking a step back in a lot of ways. California is one of those states that is seeing a huge surge in cases. You know, Florida, Arizona, Texas, those are all other ones. But California is largely closing again amid the spike in coronavirus cases. The governor, Gavin Newsom, has announced new statewide restrictions. Basically, indoor operations need to close. This is indoor dining and bars, family entertainment, zoos and museums. Also, Gyms are going to have to close again, churches, hair salons, malls, other businesses. I mean, it is a complete step back on this. And this is just one month after we reopened everything on June 12th. So it's really tough there. And there's so many things in this, people going out and whatnot. But one thing that we always come back to is testing and how difficult testing has been. We've seen longer lines for testing, longer waits for results again. But Emily, you wrote an article about how California failed the mass coronavirus testing. There was an early lag. We were playing from behind and we were never able to really catch up. Tell us a little bit about that, Emily. So what you're looking at today was born from many mistakes leading up to this moment. I think it's pretty easy to look back over the past month and attribute what we're seeing right now to the reopenings. But in reality, the issues stem from much further back. In the early stages of this, for example, it was federal restrictions that really limited California's ability to get a handle on this. It was federal restrictions on who could be tested, the the really narrow criteria back in January and February. And that trickled over the last several months through several sort of cascading steps that led for this to get out of control. And I just want to put into context for people the reason that testing is so important. It's not just an individual test result that tells you whether you should isolate. The reason it's so important for containing the outbreak is for contact tracing, something you've probably heard lots about. But right now, if the testing does not scale up, it's simply impossible to identify which people are continuing to spread the virus. So testing is really the central cornerstone for solving a crisis like this. There's a lot of people that question, oh, well, it only has figures that point in time. And that's true. But as you mentioned, you have to nail it right when it's happening. So you can do that contact tracing, tell the proper people to start isolating and hopefully limit a big spread. You actually started your story off with a brief example of what happened. The Times identified a third flight that was coming into LAX where public health officials really didn't say anything. They didn't alert travelers that they were at risk for infection. This was in the early stages of all this. And you tell about the husband of the family returned from China. The family started getting sick, but they didn't get tested. They moved out into their community. Then people at their school, their kid's school got sick. 
And it became this cluster right there. And they couldn't do it because the family couldn't get tested. This is a family who even now will tell you they don't know whether coronavirus is what they were infected with. This was in the early stages when the respiratory symptoms were not distinguishable from the flu. And they don't know, but they tried harder than most families I can imagine trying to get a test to be responsible and to stay away from the community. In fact, they were self-isolating by choice in their home before this was ever something that officials asked them to do. So it just goes to show you that members of the public were eager to prevent this from spreading and to participate in whatever way they could. But it was a lack of direction and a lack of coordination from the top, both at the federal level and also at the state level, that allowed this to sort of spiral to a point where people lost the ability to sort of take autonomy over over decisions and keep this virus from spreading. So as in the early stages of this, the virus was starting to spread. We really didn't get a handle on the true number of it. And then what happened with the labs? Because this was another critical part. And we heard a lot of this story in the past, but you actually lay out the chronology of this so well. That's why I wanted to talk to you about this. The labs were facing shortages of supplies. The demand was increasing. It's something that's happening right now as we speak again. So tell us how that was going. There's a couple different infrastructures you want to take note of here. The first is public health laboratories. Those are the government-funded laboratories across the country and across the state that are funded by the government. That's important because those specific laboratories have been crippled for years. One-fourth of all of California's public health laboratories have closed in the last two decades. So we're talking about laboratories who had zero money, very thin staff, totally unprepared for something such as a pandemic or really any type of biological emergency. They've been pleading for funding for a long time, but until a crisis occurs, it's hard to convince officials that this is something that they need to be preparing for financially. That's one side of the story. Of course, as you know, right from the White House down, they did acquire lots of support and help from commercial laboratories such as Quest and LabCorp around early March, which many people hoped would be a major turning point. And in some ways it was because testing was expanded drastically. But the limitation that was placed on commercial companies was just a physical one. There's only so much supply across the world. And many, many countries were demanding the exact same things from the supply chain at the exact same time. So specific types of plastics, specific supplies, carrier fluids, reagents. I'm sure you heard lots about chemical reagents. So the whole world is demanding something that there's a physically limited amount of. And so no money can really buy a solution to that problem. We were hearing about supply shortages all across the board. Testing, obviously, was one. Personal protective equipment. Everybody was requiring the same materials. And, you know, it was just creating that increased shortage there. And you just to continue a little bit more on the expanded testing, you mentioned in here states such as New York expanded a lot of testing to screen every nursing home patient. And California didn't have that means. And we know that about half of the deaths in California are from those facilities. So that's another unfortunate effect of this, but also why it's so important if we were able to identify and isolate those people, then maybe so many deaths wouldn't have occurred. This is where you see a fork in the road between places like New York City and places like California. New York City was able to do things like that to really overcome barriers in specific hotspots or clusters. They would put cluster busters, as they're called, these investigators who zero in on specific super spreaders and try to really just create a ring around them to isolate the infection from spreading outside of it. That was not done effectively in California. And there's a whole variety of reasons for that. It would be very difficult and perhaps unfair to try to pin it on one specific 
specific reason. But the outcome of that is that California was unable to focus in on testing specifically in these facilities where the vast majority of deaths were occurring. And that was a project that they agreed to do, even L.A. County specifically agreed to test every staff member and every resident in these guild nursing facilities. And even as of early June, they had not completed that project. So lots of sluggishness marking the California process. Sluggishness is a great word here. The backlog now, this is the next part of it. And one of the people he spoke to, I laugh because it's such a funny memory, but in this case, it's not so funny, obviously. But they said that this uh, deluge of specimens, this backlog, resembled that accelerating conveyor belt of confections on the classic Chocolate Factory episode of I Love Lucy. Just everything backing up and not being able to catch up. That's kind of what happened after that. That's what lab workers and lab officials describe it as looking like. The one that the specific woman that you're speaking about is a very high ranking lab representative for a hospital system. And she piled those samples into her own car and drove it to another laboratory to try to get them tested. So this is sort of a prime example of the way that the bureaucracy sort of broke down the system. So this leads us all back to contact tracing and why that's so important. Everything's backed up. We're not identifying fresh cases, the new cases that are critical because those people maybe don't know they're still out in the community infecting others. And contact tracing, I mean, right now we have 1,759 contact tracers for more than 10 million residents. That's nowhere near enough. I mean, if you were to compare this to what we saw in the beginning when you had dozens of contact tracers to a case, that would never be replicated right now, certainly. But you do hope that your staff is strong enough and broad enough that you're able to very quickly react to cases. I mentioned this earlier, but I want to mention it again now. The speed of testing impacts contact tracers greatly because even Curative, Curative is an example of a very strong, popular company that the tech startup from San Francisco that did a great, great deal of testing in L.A. County. L.A. County abandoned using that company. And and one of the reasons that I was told by a spokesperson for the county was the lag in test results. And, you know, if you if you have a lag such as 48 hours, you've lost the window in which you can go identify the case's contacts before they continue the spread. So we're talking about a very quick turnaround that you need in test results in order to adequately carry out your contact tracing with your strong and large staff. We're still... Lagging behind testing, we've seen the stories of longer lines, longer wait times. Obviously, after the holidays, things kind of started blowing up. But once again, we have these shortages of swabs, the reagents, the materials we need. And then also, they're starting to scale back certain testing in certain areas again and imposing stricter guidelines for that. Some of that is the communication failure. Some of the test sites you're referring to are the underutilized sites. So in some areas of the state, specifically rural areas and underserved inner city areas, were a major focus for Governor Newsom's plan for rolling out testing, for expanding testing to communities where the virus wasn't being detected very quickly in the early days. And, you know, of course, that kind of work relies on good public communication. In some of those regions, there was questions over whether getting tested would be an issue regarding your immigration status, questions regarding whether it would be costly if you didn't have insurance. And of course, coronavirus testing is free across the state, and officials do claim that regardless of your immigration status, they want you to get tested, that there won't be any negative consequences for you for doing so. But that's not being communicated well enough to the public. At least that's what the numbers suggest, because at these locations, testing is still low, the demand is low. And so the state has decided to go ahead and roll back those locations and use the funding and the support elsewhere. Emily Baumgartner, medical reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Vincent Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.